Is anybody able to detect any theme in our opening songs? Yes. I'm sorry? America. America, okay. What significant day uh, did we celebrate this past week? Independence Day, right? What does the Independence Day commemorate? Yeah, this will be a history lesson, by the way, so I hope you guys We've all been studying your book and are prepared for any pop quiz we may have. So what, what, are we, what did we commem commemorate on Independence Day? Which was what day, by the way? July 4th. Okay, July 4th. All right, what happened in July 4th that we remembered? I'm sorry? What did you say, Mrs. Bruton? Yeah, it was actually the signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? It was when a number of men, <coughs> I think I kind of had a picture of that, see how well we can keep up here. Uh, yeah, so there was a document created by a number of famous people, such as John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, often known as the fathers of this country, and they drafted a piece of paper they wrote on it, and then they signed their name at the bottom. And that happened July 4th, you know, give or take a day, close enough. And uh, yeah, that's what we uh, celebrated this week. Now, uh, as we think about that, I, there is another freedom that uh, people don't appreciate uh, that not everybody in this country enjoys that's of even greater value than the freedom that perhaps is contained in, in our celebration of the 4th of July, and that is the freedom that uh, Christ has given us as believers in the Lord Jesus. And uh, that's what we want to really think about today, but uh, we will use, if, if you would, uh, the uh, freedom that this country enjoys or, or what is uh, commemorated on the 4th of July as a springboard to think about the freedom uh, that we have with Christ. And there's going to be uh, four questions that I will attempt to answer in today's sermon. Maybe these are not your questions. Uh, these are the questions I wrote. But uh, that will help you at least outline the message today if you want to be able to track along. And the four questions are, what is it that led to our bondage? And we'll think about it in both ways, the bondage that this country was delivered from on the 4th of July, uh, and the bondage that we are delivered from as believers in the Lord Jesus. But what was it that led to our bondage? What kind of bondage, or what were the sufferings of the bondage? And how were we made free from bondage? And how do we enjoy that freedom? Okay, so that's it. Four, four points, four questions for us to consider. So the first one is, uh, what was the cause of bondage? What was it that led to the bondage? Well, for the colonies, uh, that's pretty easy. Uh, they simply moved to a place that was owned by the King of England. So most people perhaps came from England and you could say, well, England was also owned by the King of England. Yes, that's true, but uh, in England, they had 
districts, and each district had representative that went to the parliament. That wasn't true about the colonies. The colonies were the property of the King of England. There were no representatives sent from the colonies to the King of England. So by virtue of choosing to move into the colonies, that kind of red line on the east, eastern seaboard of the United States, what is the United States today, uh, you basically you put yourself directly under the King of England uh, with no representative in the House of Parliament. So really, you did it to yourself. Right? You chose to move to that part of the world where you are technically in bondage to the King of England. Uh, how about us? How do we, or how did the human race, get into a place of bondage? Again, it was our own doing. We could trace it in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, after Adam created man, uh, Adam and Eve, he placed them in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he gave them one command, verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just one command God gave to the human race in the Garden of Eden, don't eat of that tree, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do eat it, you will die. Right? Very simple uh, rule that God gave mankind. Now, God made lots of trees, lots of fruit, lots of beautiful things, lots of animals to enjoy. We spent the uh, past week in uh, Monterey Bay, and we got to see some of the wonderful creatures that God created. Adam and Eve had the Garden of Eden to enjoy with all the animals, all the creatures, all the fruit, full provision of, uh, of God's magnificence, uh, and just one rule, one tree, don't eat of that fruit. If you do, you will die. Simple enough. Chapter 3, verse 1 now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Now I think we all in this room realize that the serpent wasn't just a snake. This was the devil um, with a disguise of a serpent coming to Adam and Eve. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? All right, so he's challenging Eve. He is really going to be tempting Adam and Eve in this passage to eat of that one tree that God told them not to eat. We notice he's starting to change what God has said. He's very subtle. Uh, the, the devil is an excellent liar, right? an excellent deceiver, the best right, that ever was made. As God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So here Adam and Eve break that one rule that God has given them in the Garden of Eden and the result was that they came under bondage. And we'll detail that in the next section. But the main thing, just as the colonists did it to themselves, so did we did it to ourselves. We put ourselves under bondage through our choices, through our choices. What are the sufferings of bondage or what kind of bondage is it that we came under? In the case of the colonists, um, I have a, a picture of that. Uh, it was this series of acts or taxes that were placed on the land. The King of England or the Parliament of England uh, had a problem, they were in financial debt. And part of that financial debt arguably came from maintaining the colonies. There was a war, they, it was called the French-Indian War, and the British had to send armies to repel the French, to repel the Indians, and if you don't know, it cost a lot of money to field an army. And uh, the parliament, it was really the parliament, even though the king is usually blamed for this, decided, well, the colonies uh, should, should you know, pay the cost of all the armies that we sent over them. And that sounds fairly logical, right? And it especially helps that there were no representatives from the colonies that could protest uh, this tax. I could imagine uh, if the tax was levied on some part of England, you'd have the representative from that part standing up and arguing why it shouldn't be done and, and perhaps being able to sway or politically wheel and deal to keep the taxes away from their part of England. Well, there was no one like that that would protect the United States from these taxes, the colonies from these taxes. And so they started levying tax after tax upon the colonists, and the colonists got really mad, and they came up with this line saying, no taxation without representation. You know, you wanna tax us, you know, we deserve to have representatives in the parliament. And the uh, parliament or the king would have none of that. And that really became the sole point that led to the rebellion or the declaration of independence. They didn't like being taxed. Okay. How about us? What kind of bondage do we have as a result of our choice to rebel against God? Well, it's those three parts. We could find the three parts in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, And you he made alive who were dead, number one, in trespasses and sins, number two, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Number three, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We came under bondage to death, to sin, and to Satan or the devil. And let me show that from the scripture. Uh, first of all, this verse basically said it, but we could, um, look at uh, the continuation of the story we just read in Genesis chapter 2. 
And we'll see the first one coming into fruition, becoming under bondage to death. Verse 8, Genesis 3, 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What is death? Death is separation, first of all, from God. God created us to have a relationship with himself. Adam and Eve enjoyed a relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. That relationship died when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. God warned them it would happen. In the day you will eat of that tree, you will surely die. And we see that immediately after they sinned against God, uh, as they heard God coming, as he probably did daily in the garden, they hid themselves. Why did they hide from God? Well, they were afraid of God. Why were they afraid of God? The relationship with God was broken. He died. And so today, we come into this world separated from God. I think most people, maybe all people, don't appreciate that death because we consider it the norm. We come into the world not knowing God, without a relationship with God. And so if someone would have told me that I'm spiritually dead because I have no relationship with God before I was saved, I would not know what they're talking about. Well, yeah, I guess I don't have a relationship with God. Is that a problem? It is, because you were created to have that relationship. And there's other ramification. The next uh, aspect of death is the death of the body. In Genesis 3.19, God speaking to Adam, he says, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God made his bodies out of dust, were made out of the elements of the earth. And uh, one day, this body will die, and it will return to dust. Uh, it's one of those realities, again, in, in life that people don't really want to face. Um, how often do you go to a graveyard? <laughs> Not very often. Right? First time I went to a graveyard was the death of my grandmother in Israel. I was 10 years old. I was devastated, and that was all new to me, the whole concept of taking a body in a coffin. I didn't see the body, and uh, placing it underground. We don't want to be reminded of the reality of death, and yet that is exactly where we are going. The, one of the fathers of the Declaration of Independence Benjamin Franklin coined the term that there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes, right? And uh, we might avoid paying taxes. We're not going to avoid being put in a graveyard, right? Our body dying. Unless, as believers, we do have the hope, which we will talk about later, of being caught up in the clouds and going straight to heaven with the Lord. But other than that, this is something we have to expect. And it's a reasonable consequence. God gave us this body, right, to live, to, to live in this, this world, to serve him, to love him. If we are separated from God, if we are cut off from our relationship with him, 
why should God continue to sustain this body? Right? So it's a reasonable outcome of our separation from God that this body, this dust, will return to dust. It's the bondage of death that all mankind is under. Finally, we have what's been termed the second death or eternal death, and that is what happens to our spirit, to our soul, after we die. Because again, God made us for a relationship with himself. We are a two or really a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And so when this body dies, the real me, the soul that lives in this body, still must come to terms with the fact that I am separated from God. And the solution to that is in Revelation chapter 20. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. We call this the day of judgment, and that's when each person will stand before God to give account for the life that they lived. But we already know the answer because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So not surprising, verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. All right, again, there's a, just a hint here for an exception. There are those whose names are written in the book of life. But based on our works, we all deserve the same place eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. This is the bondage of death that every man, woman, and child in this world are under. No exception. Again, we did it to ourselves when we chose to rebel against God. Chose to do the one thing that God told us not to do. Second, I mentioned there's three parts, three types of bondage under which we suffer because of our choice to rebel against God. The second one is bondage to sin. Bondage to sin. Again, it's one of these things we try to minimize, we try not to believe. Uh, if you were to, to ask me whether I was a sinner about a, a year before I was saved, I would probably say no. Right? Because I didn't feel I did anything that was really bad. But God's standard is perfect. And uh, we break it daily. And if we are to be honest with ourselves, 
we would recognize that we cannot keep our own standard of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, the Lord used that to convict me of my sin when a friend in college said to me that uh, I could be a perfect boyfriend except that I would probably cheat on my girlfriend. And uh, I was offended by the suggestion that I would ever cheat on my girlfriend. And I told this person that I would never do that. I would never do that. And yet a year later, I found myself doing exactly that. And I realized that I couldn't stop myself. I would do what I wanted to do, irrespective of how much I might hurt other people, if I thought it would contribute to my own happiness, <laughs> which was fleeting and changing. Right? That was just the reality of who I was. But uh, it's the reality of every person who is willing to be honest with themselves. They cannot even keep their own standard of righteousness. The scripture says it this way, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. There was a change that happened to our nature when we chose to sin against God. If you think about it, Adam and Eve were entering a territory of sin against God. He told them what not to do. They entered it, and not just with the intent of maybe breaking God's commands once. Think about what it was that Satan said to them. God knows that in the day you will eat of it, you will become like God yourself, knowing good and evil. What was the temptation in eating of that tree? It was so that they could make their own choices. Right? Up to that point, God knew good, God knew evil, and it was simple, do what God says to do. But they wanted to have their own wisdom that will help them determine what was right and what was wrong. They wouldn't need God anymore. So they really were made a choice to live without God, to live a life of deciding for themselves what was right and wrong, which is a life of sin. And so not, not surprising, we find ourselves in bondage to sin. This is the life we chose to live. A life that is not based on God's standard, based on our own standards, which are changing, and we can't even keep them. Bondage to sin. Jesus said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, or a slave of sin. Finally, I said it's a three-part bondage. We are under bondage <coughs> to Satan, to the devil. He deceived Adam and Eve, and we are told in Revelation 12, 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Who deceives the whole world. It's not just Adam and Eve that Satan deceived. He is actively engaged in deceiving the whole world. First John says it this way, the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. When Shannon and I uh, had our first child, 
we learned that there's all kinds of uh, tools that were created to uh, help you have a quiet baby. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have exactly that one. I think this is a newer model. But uh, basically, they have these different things to put your baby in that uh, will move around and somehow keep your baby happy and uh, not crying. That's the sense of this verse, believe it or not, when it says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, the devil has this world in a similar situation where he can uh, control us and, so to speak, put us to sleep. One of the reasons people are so unaware of this bondage to death and bondage to sin is Satan is hard at work to convince people that everything is okay. Right? Just like he told Eve, you will not surely die. Don't worry about God, what God said. Right? You know, what you're doing is not so bad. You know, it, God is the one who doesn't really want your best, is keeping away from you this good thing, you know, this, this you know, fruit of the knowledge of good. And you could become like God. It's not so bad. And so the world thinks that we're okay. And it's really the influence of the devil, right? He is called the God of this age. We just read in Ephesians uh, 2, 2, that he is the prince of the power of the air. He has a way of distracting us, keeping us from the realization of the problem we're in. This world is going to hell. And people think everything is fine. Why? Because of the power of the devil, the bondage to the devil, the fact that he has power over us. And again, as we said before, it was really our own choice, right? Adam and Eve chose to follow Satan instead of following God. It's little surprise that Satan has power over us, right? We made the choice to follow him. He is the leader. He is the ruler of everything where God is excluded. And we chose to step outside of the sphere of God's rule. And so no wonder that we are under the influence of the devil. So I hope you get some of that picture because really uh, the devil, the world work, work, work very hard to deny us of, this, of the terrible situation in which we are and from which Christ came to redeem us. But it is the worst slavery that the human race has ever found. We, you know, the, the colonists complained about having to pay taxes without representation, right? But we have to pay taxes today. <laughs> I have representatives, does it help me? No, I still have to pay taxes, right? And, uh, you know, chance is that they'll get higher, right? It doesn't stop the fact that I have representatives. They, the reality is we have bills to pay as a country and, and those will have to be distributed out to us taxpayers, right? We only got so much out of the Declaration of Independence. And yet Christ offers us so much more as far as freedom than uh, the uh, fathers of the Declaration of Independence ever did. Okay. 
So those was the first two questions, if you remember. First was, what was the cause of bondage? Well, we did it to ourselves. What was the sufferings of bondage? For the colonists, it, it was taxes. For us, it was bondage to death, to sin, and to Satan. And the third question was, how are we delivered from this bondage? Well, it's a little bit tricky if you think about it as the colonists came to see it. It really was this declaration of independence, right? It, it was as simple as saying, you know, we are a free country, right? We have every reason in the book, or so they felt. I can show the picture of the, of the meeting. You know, they came, they talked about it, they agreed, they wrote a piece of paper, and they signed their names at the bottom, right? And really that was, if you would, the official act of severance of this country from uh, Great Britain. Now, you could say that the king didn't quite approve of what his men said, and he sent his armies to uh, you know, put these guys in prison or tar and feather or hang them, whatever he thought would be right, um, and tried to force the country under him, but really all they had to do was persevere. They did not have the might to defeat Great Britain, but they had the will <laughs> to last and to last and to last. That's the next picture uh, taken from Valley Forge, which most people attribute uh, the, the victory, or if you would, our, our perseverance against England. We were losing. We had a ragtag army that uh, was practically starving in the cold. We may have lost more people to cold and starvation and disease than we did to British bullets, but we persevered. Right? We insisted not to give in and to go back to the rule of England. And ultimately, that is what won us the independence. So it was a declaration of the independence and then just believing in it and not giving up. Right? That was how the colonists were delivered from the British Empire. And finally, it was solidified, you could argue, when the king or parliament signed some sort of term of peace with us. Right? So at the end of the war, they said, okay, we're done fighting. You guys can have your piece of land across the ocean if you want it. Right? Um, what about us? Could we do the same? Could we say, that's it, death be gone. That is, sin, you know, we're going to stop obeying you. That is, Satan, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Could we, as a people as mankind have done that. Yeah, not a chance. Not a chance. We can't stop ourselves from dying. Physical death, which is the one that we have the most say over, we've been trying to fight with medicine for years, and we can't. You know, person after person still dies with all the medical intervention we can apply. We can do nothing to make ourselves right with God. Right? How can we revive our relationship with God on our part alone? We can't. Our sins separated us from God. And can we stop sinning? You know, no. Resolution after resolution uh, doesn't help us. We find that we are stuck in sin and we continue to sin. We cannot save ourselves. We need another to save us. Praise God. Praise God. He sent a deliverer. We were worshiping him this morning, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly 
what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. That is how we are made free from death, sin, and Satan. A few verses on that topic. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is the Lord Jesus, all the fullness should, should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was God who wanted to reconcile us to himself. He is the action figure here. And how did he choose to do it? Is by sending the Lord Jesus into this world, and in particularly through the blood of his cross. He wanted to reconcile us, to bring us back into a relationship with himself. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. We who were enemies to God, we were separated from God, alienated. He reconciled us to himself. How? In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Praise God. So first, remember I said that there were three aspects of death. First, there's the spiritual death, separation from God. And this passage applied to that. Jesus reconciles us to God. He makes us one with God again. He makes us children of God, the closest relationship that we can have in this life. That's the relationship that we have with God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. There he put away that which separated us from God, our sin, and made us, it says, holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He cleansed us from our sins, so now there is nothing that separates us from God. I mentioned that there were three aspects to death, the spiritual, the physical, and the second death or the eternal so the physical one, we have this for us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is a well-known chapter about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, God, and, and Paul in the passage explained the importance of the resurrection. And part of that importance is that his resurrection shows our resurrection. And that makes sense. God brought us back into a relationship with himself. He didn't give us bodies by chance when he made us. He always wanted us to have bodies. And so it makes sense that if this body will return to dust, then we will have a new body. And it also makes sense that the new body needs to be a different kind of body than this body, because it needs to be a body that will last for all of eternity with God. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, so when this corruptible, this body, which is a corruptible body, it can be destroyed, it can be corrupted, has put on incorruption, meaning a new body that cannot be destroyed, cannot be corrupted. And this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Are we still under bondage to death? No, death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul finishes with this, uh, if you would, mocking of death in this sing-song kind of way. 
Oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He saves us from death. Yes, this body will die unless the Lord Jesus comes back first and takes us directly to be with him in heaven, which I'm hoping for personally. But if not, there is a new body prepared for me and for you. A body unlike this body, but made like the body of the Lord Jesus, eternal in the heavens. And then finally, we talked about the eternal death that was the lake of fire. Again, it makes sense if God reconciled us to himself, he gave us, he's giving us this new body. He also has a completely different place for us. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so death completely defeated. We're given a new relationship with God, a new body, and a place, a perfect place with God for all of eternity. We are delivered from the bondage of death through the Lord Jesus. Okay, then we mentioned bondage to sin. We're delivered from bondage to sin as well. Now we understand as believers that it comes in, in three ways. First, it's, if you would, being delivered from the power of our sinful nature, being given a new nature, which is a, a righteous nature, a nature just like that of Christ, and it's being given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. What we sometimes miss is the fact that even that is made possible through the cross of the Lord Jesus. A good verse that shows that is Romans 8, verse 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin of death. This is talking about law as in power. The power of the Holy Spirit makes me free from the power of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God had to condemn sin in the flesh. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He also died to sin. God condemned sin in the flesh of the Lord Jesus as Jesus was put to death. And that enables God to release us from the sinful nature, give us this new nature and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. That all comes through the cross, through the work 
of the Lord Jesus on the cross for us. Okay, and I mentioned one more, deliverance from Satan, right? We're under bondage to Satan. We need to be delivered from Satan. Hebrews 2, verse 14 tells us, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So again we see it was through the cross and his death on the cross that Jesus delivers us from the realm of Satan. Remember, it was, it was our choice that put us under the power of Satan. And it was only through Jesus dying for our sins that we could be brought out of that power into freedom, into being in the sphere of God's uh, power. That all came through the cross of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so that answers our third question. How are we delivered from bondage? We're delivered from bondage through the Lord Jesus, in particular, the death of Jesus on the cross. Okay, our final question. How do we enjoy this freedom? I could imagine a colonist in uh, the day that the Declaration of Independence was uh, broadcasted from the rooftops. Uh, perhaps uh, newspapers were publishing the document and uh, colonists could be reading the words and he's saying, these are words, just words, right? They don't mean anything. <laughs> the King of England, that's a power I believe in. This rag, you know, ragtag bunch that gathered together and are calling themselves the representatives of the colonies. You know, what does the, what does the word mean? They don't have an army. They, they don't have power. The King of England has power. And as a result, that person uh, would miss out, if you would, on the freedom. What these men said did have significance, right? They were respected representatives from the colonies. Uh, the king represented, uh, the king respected them enough to send his armies from across the sea to try to enforce his rule. Uh, and in uh, something like eight years' time, uh, it would become, you know, clearly the power of the land. So. These people actually had power in what they said, and a person who refused to believe their words and the power behind their words would completely miss out on the blessing of freedom. He would continue paying taxes to the king of England. The same thing is true when it comes to enjoying the freedom that Christ purchased for us. A person must believe it. Uh, a person could fail to believe in the seriousness of their bondage, right? Uh, he might think that, well, I'm not really under slavery. Uh, I'm not really uh, going to experience death, or maybe that's just not so bad. Uh, I'm not really a sinner, or maybe that's not so bad. Uh, I'm not uh, really controlled by Satan, or maybe that's just not so bad. And as a result, not embrace what Christ has done for them. Uh, it could also be that the person just doesn't believe in what Christ has done for them and feel that they uh, must earn their own salvation uh, through uh, good works. 
And in both cases, a person will miss out on the freedom that Christ has come to give them. Right? It must be entered by faith. You must believe in Christ and what Christ has done for you on the cross in order to enter the good of what Christ has done. Now, uh, again, we, I could kind of sympathize, perhaps, with a person, a colonist, of doubting the words of the uh, people who declared uh, the independence of the United States, because they were just words, right? There were no uh, significant actions, perhaps, to substantiate what they were saying. But this is not the case with the freedom that's offered to us through Christ. It's not just words. Paul, as he was uh, writing his epistle to the Corinthians, his second epistles in chapter 5, was describing the reality of his mission. He was an ambassador, an ambassador for Christ. He says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And I'm sure that's your heart as well as it is mine, as I spent a week with my parents who are unbelievers. Uh, I was struggling with the fact that they had full salvation offered to them uh, through Christ, uh, through freedom, freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, and yet the one thing that keeps them from enjoying freedom is their own uh, refusal to believe in him, right? The, the door is wide open, it's flung, it's available for everyone to come in and enjoy and taste and see that the Lord is good, right? It's their own uh, stubbornness or disbelief that is keeping them, them from enjoying it. And so Paul adds this to his appeal to the Corinthians, or really describing his appeal to all men everywhere, on what grounds should we come in? On what grounds should we believe God that his offer is good? He finishes in verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God did not stop at words. He didn't just say, come and I will provide for your salvation. Come and see how in a few years your provision uh, will be full. He paid the price out front for us all to see. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, was made sin for us. He paid the ultimate price, that one thing that is most offensive to God, our sins were placed on the Lord Jesus, and there he died for our sins. And so today we look back at the cross. Uh, the cross remains the center 
of our faith. Most churches will have crosses on them just to signify that is the one event that uh, should draw all people to God. God did not stop at words. He went ahead and he paid the full price for you and for me to come and to enjoy his salvation. So if you have not done so yet, if you haven't, have not yet come forward and claimed the freedom that Jesus uh, offers you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, come. He has already paid the price. Everything is ready for you to come and enjoy uh, freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from Satan. Uh, it's yours and it's mine today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and sought us. We were not inclined to seek you. We rushed headlong into sin and under the sway of the devil were not aware of the seriousness of our condition. And yet you from heaven, seeing uh, the depth of our misery, uh, you came and you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, and stopped in nothing until his death uh, secured our salvation. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who may have as yet not come to enjoy that freedom that Christ offers us, that you might draw them to yourself and bring them uh, to enjoy that freedom with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.